This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak to us once again today by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I was in the new catacombs for coffee hour between the services. I introduced myself to a newcomer, and the person asked me what my role was at Ascension. And I said I was the rector, the senior pastor. He asked me, how long have you been here? About 19 years, I replied. Wow, he said. I've never heard of you. <laughs> what a great response. In, in a world where personality cults too often reign, I'm kind of glad he'd never heard of me. I mean, yes, no, let's just leave it at that. You know, I've never thought of Ascension as being my church. Um, I hope it's never been the Jonathan Millard show, and I hope it never will be. That said, I do think it's possible for us to become overly attached to a particular denomination or church or Christian leader who may have been used by God to help us come to faith or grow in our faith. If that leads to taking sides or arguments around any particular leader, that's not a good thing. Sadly, the church has been plagued with divisions and disagreements from the very beginning. Listen to what St. Paul says in that reading we heard from 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. And he needed to write that because this young church in Corinth was not united and had different factions in it. If we think there will be a day when we will all agree about everything as Christians, we are surely fooling ourselves. The problem is that the church is made up of people like me and like you, people who are sometimes highly opinionated, people who are at many different stages of Christian understanding and maturity, and people who make mistakes or hurt each other or simply mess up. So until Jesus comes again, we're going to have to live with some imperfection. Well, this morning, I want to take a closer look at this passage from 1 Corinthians to understand what the issues causing division at Corinth were all about and what we might learn from them. Clearly, there were some, whether they were personality cults, there were people being held up as being their heroes, the ones they would follow. And Paul makes reference to four different factions. First, there was the I belong to Paul party. For many, Paul was the one who had brought them to faith. And they were forever grateful and loyal, even to a fault. And sadly, many a church congregation has experienced this kind of factionalism. So when there's a change in leadership, there may be some who will always be wanting to go back to the good old days when the previous leader was present. That happened here among some in our congregation when I arrived. The problem was, 
I wasn't the previous rector. For a couple of years, I wondered whether I would make it. I thought perhaps I would go straight from being the new rector to the old rector. Thankfully, for better or worse, I, I can say that I did make it to being simply the rector, whom some people have never heard of. It's possible to couch our very human disagreements in lofty theological ways, when in reality, what might be happening is that there's a clash of personalities, which in turn is a poor excuse for failing to do the work of building relationships in the body of Christ. And what can happen is that a church may divide with both sides convinced that they are right and they hold the theological high ground when the truth is each side has refused to allow God's love and grace to melt their hard hearts. Well, let's go back to Corinth. And second, there was the I belong to Apollos party. We don't know a lot about Apollos, but in the book of Acts, we learn that he was from the highly respected university city of Alexandria in Egypt. Apollos knew his Bible, was an excellent speaker, enthusiastic, and was a bold evangelist. It's possible that Apollos had become the champion of um, an intellectual elite. Or maybe he was the yardstick by which all other preachers were measured. We don't know. But as soon as we think one person has all the answers, or we hold up one person above anyone above Jesus, then we're in trouble. Well, third, there's the I belong to Peter party. And this may well have represented some sort of Jewish Christian grouping. And there were several legalistic practices that had emerged in the church at Corinth, especially around food laws and whether or not you could eat food offered to idols. It's quite possible that the freedom that is ours in Christ can produce, in some, a kind of backlash of legalism. So there are some people who maybe become overly zealous in recommending a particular spiritual practice or a rule of life. Perhaps it's because we find grace so difficult to receive and embrace that we slip back into law and rules and we try to hedge everything safely in. But that's a dangerous place for a church to be in. Well, fourth, there was the I belong to Christ party. And you might think, well, that's good, isn't it? Well, this is a bit more tricky, Again, we can only perhaps speculate what this was about. But perhaps this was a group that had become rather super spiritual. It's possible, and we see it in our day, that Christians may reject leadership and authority and will simply appeal to having a direct line to God. Now, I believe God still speaks through his word written and by the Holy Spirit continues to direct and guide us. But it can be very difficult to engage with someone who forever says, well, God told me to do this or that or the other. And this way of being is not just found in super spiritual groups or fundamentalist groups. It's also ironically sometimes found amongst more progressive groups of folks. So that today it's common to encounter those who say that the Spirit is leading us into new truth. 
And there's a desire to use experience as the new yardstick for discerning what is right. Well, taken together, these divisions at Corinth were serious enough for Paul to write about it, to challenge them. He didn't say, oh, why don't you all just get along? No, he appealed for a particular kind of unity, a unity of mind and a unity of purpose. This unity is based on the person and work of Jesus. What we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is what in the end will divide us or unite us. The notion that Jesus is merely another prophet among many, a good example, a religious hero, a way to God, but not the way, cannot sit side by side with the biblical accounts of Jesus as the one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And the call that we find in the scriptures to each person to follow Jesus. If Jesus died on the cross only as a great martyr or moral example, but he never actually rose from the grave, then there is no power in the gospel. Yet the truth we proclaim is that Jesus died for a particular purpose, to secure salvation for a lost and dying world. And this truth is proved by his resurrection, demonstrating his victory over the power of sin and death and hell. At the heart of the matter for the church in Corinth, there was a clash of worldviews. On the one hand, there was the good news of the gospel, and on the other, there was a worldly wisdom. Apparently, not much has changed in 2,000 years. We see similar clashes of views in our country, in our city. There's no shortage of worldly wisdom for us. Surrounded as we are by the great universities, medical school and law schools in Pittsburgh, and yet, for all that is so good and wise and helpful in these places of learning, worldly wisdom alone is not enough when it comes to facing life's ultimate questions and our deepest needs. The specific divisions in our church and culture may be different from those found in the first century Corinth, but the underlying causes of those divisions are not so different. Within the church now, we don't have disagreements about eating meat offered to idols, but we do have disagreements about other things. And within the culture, there are very real differences and disagreements, irreconcilable differences and disagreements between the world and the church. How we face disagreements about what the Bible teaches and how we're to live in the light of these teachings presents us with a challenge and a temptation. The challenge is how to engage appropriately with the divisions in the church and the world. The temptation can be to rely merely on skillful arguments to make our case. It's certainly a temptation for me, as one who likes to be right. But the older I get, the more I am reminded 
that I don't always have to defend my viewpoint or make the case, or worse, argue someone else into a corner to prove just how right I am. Often, I will do much better to listen more than I talk, to seek to understand rather than explain, and demonstrate more compassion than conviction. And perhaps hardest of all, practice not having the last word. The prayer of St. Francis comes to mind, that as followers of Jesus, we may be instruments of his peace. Now, this does not mean that we discard biblical truth. Far from it. And yet, at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is not a, not a matter of talk, but of power. Indeed, the real danger of too many words is that one of two things may happen. Either people will simply glaze over as arguments for the gospel are articulated, or people may feel unable to engage with words, fearing that to do so is like stepping into a debating chamber, or worse, a courtroom. How then are we to face divisions in the church and the world? Well, I think we can take a leaf out of Paul's book. Notice how our portion of his letter in 1 Corinthians concludes in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to proclaim the gospel with eloquent wisdom. Instead of eloquent wisdom, Paul pleads something else, something which to many will have seemed sheer foolishness. He pleads the cross of Christ. And so what we discover is that the heart of the matter is not the most convincing arguments, but a cross. And the cross, that dreadful and barbaric instrument of torture and death, has a power of its own. Sadly, to those who are perishing, Paul tells us, it is sheer foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have a choice. Either we can put our trust in the world's wisdom, or we can depend upon the power of the cross. But what does that mean? What does it mean to put our trust in the power of the cross? Well, I think it means in part, instead of relying on our own wisdom and our own strength, we can admit that we are not the autonomous, invincible individuals we might think we are or that the world may tell us we are. Putting our trust in the power of the cross means saying that we need help. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our intellects, our cleverness, our schemes and our strivings, that we are able to come to the foot of the cross. I never cease to be amazed. Sometimes as I look at myself, or as I listen to other people's stories, at just how foolish we can be as we go to such lengths to avoid facing this truth. How often we fall into the false wisdom of trying harder, working harder, running harder, hiding harder, avoiding harder. It's so sad. It's pitiful. For there's no lasting power in our own worldly wisdom and schemes and self-help programs. Only 
through the, through the cross and the resurrection power of God that ensured that the cross was not the end, do we encounter the real power of God. Resurrection power that is able to save us, heal us, and restore us. When you kneel at the foot of the cross, you will find that it is a very level place on which to kneel. Be you wealthy and powerful or poor and powerless, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can save ourselves. We are made in God's image, not our own image. You must choose either earthly wisdom or the power of the cross, which brings real peace. The good news of the cross is good news for all. Jesus didn't just die for Christians. He died for the world. He died for the Hindu, the Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, and today's growing number of nons, those who claim no religious affiliation. He died for each and every one of us here today. You have a choice. Eloquent wisdom or the power of of the cross. When you stand before God, as one day you will, will you plead your theological credentials, the books you've read, your service to others, your sound faith, and your good works, or will you trust only in the power of the cross and in Jesus who gave his life for you? You have a choice. Worldly wisdom or the love and grace and mercy of God in Christ. It is at the foot of the cross that we find mercy, healing, love, and forgiveness. Those things that divide us won't ultimately be won or lost by whomever has the best arguments or the greatest words of wisdom, but only as we submit to the power of the cross. And so I pray that today we may draw closer to the cross and to the one who gave his life for us. And as we do so, I pray also that God will use us to bring down the walls of division within the church and in the world and make us be peacemakers. When Jesus called those first disciples to follow him, he was calling them to follow him in the way of the cross. And he told those fishermen he would make them fish for people. The call to follow Jesus is our calling. And still today, Jesus would have us fish for people. Or to put it another way, Jesus wants us to share the good news of the cross with others. And to invite others to join us in following Jesus. And so often, this invitation can begin with the simplest of things, maybe a simple act of hospitality. Elsewhere, Jesus invited would-be followers to come and see. He ate with them, walked with them, shared his life with them. I wonder how are you getting on with the hospitality challenge that I introduced last year? I hope this year you will continue, or maybe you didn't hear about it. Well, then make a start to invite others into your home or go for a walk with someone you don't know well let us be intentional in the ways in which we follow jesus 
sharing our lives, practicing hospitality, and being instruments of his peace and light in a world that is dark and so often in despair. Well, I want to close by praying that prayer of St. Francis that I mentioned a moment ago. And I, I invite you to pray this with me, if you're willing, in the quietness of your own hearts. So let's take a moment and pause and then pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.